turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, as we begin a new year, we also begin a new sermon series today that we have entitled, Following Jesus Through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark begins his gospel in a very interesting way. You see there in verse 1, it says that the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's so interesting that Mark calls his, his writing a gospel because other religions of the day would have used very different words to describe the introduction to a religion, a religious thought. Mark is uh, regarded as the first gospel to be written, and he begins this way, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. I mentioned before, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word gospel, Maybe you think of a genre of music, gospel music. We refer to gospel singers and gospel songs. Maybe you think of the Gospel Coalition and read some of their blogs, and that's great. I commend them to you. I think they're good. Maybe when you hear the word gospel, you equate that word with truth. Like, I'm telling you, the gospel truth, people will say to us. Uh, But it's so interesting that Mark chose that word gospel to describe this presentation of Christianity that he is giving us here because other religions of the day didn't use it. This was not a church word, okay? We associate gospel with religion, but this was not at all a church word. It was a government word. It was a word for governing. And other religions typically would use a word like illumination or revelation, and Christianity does involve those things, although that's not primarily what the good news of the gospel is. Of course, Christianity came out of the Jewish faith, and as you read the Old Testament scriptures, the the story of what God is doing is referred to as teaching or instruction or wisdom, and all those things are true of Christianity, but that's not primarily what Christianity is about. You see, this word gospel is a word that means good news. It's a word that means good news. And and, and it was not used in churches or about religion at all. It was actually used by the government, by the Roman Empire. In fact, we um, we have scraps, we have inscriptions that archaeologists have found. And, and if we look at how the word was used in the day, which is how the original audience would hear it, that's the way we want to hear what Mark is saying. And when we see what archaeologists have discovered, we have found inscriptions that say the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome. You see, the way the word gospel was used as good news when Mark adopts it and uses it for Christianity, you see, when a king came to power, there were heralds or messengers that went out to announce this new state of affairs, that there was a coronation or that the king had won some great battle and had come to power. And, and this good news, this gospel introduced a new state of affairs where the people had to relate to this person as their king because of what had happened in history. And so Mark chooses that word. That's what he is saying. He chooses that word that's not a church word. It's funny, I read some background stuff, and there are folks that say, well, this is Mark's biography of Jesus. (laughs) With, With all due respect, if this is a biography, it's not a very good one, right? 
Doesn't even tell anything about the first 30 years of the guy's life. We get nothing, zero, zilch, right? And Mark doesn't say this is a biography. He says this is gospel. This is good news about an event that has happened in history, about a new king that has come to power that means that everything changes and that we have to relate to him differently because there is a new king. That's what Mark is saying when he begins his gospel in this way. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, thanks for the history lesson, Scott. Glad to hear about the, I didn't know gospel was in the church, where I always thought it was. So what? What difference does this make to my life? And that's a good question to ask as we come to the scripture. I encourage you to ask, to ask those kinds of questions. But I would submit to you that it makes a huge difference even in our lives today. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Number one. If what I'm saying is true, and that's how Mark is using the word gospel, then that means that the gospel is primarily about what God has done for in history for us. It's about a historical event of what God has accomplished, and it's good news that's being announced to us. That means that the gospel is not primarily about instruction or teaching about what we are to do for God. It has implications for our lives. We have to relate to the world differently because these historical facts are true. But the gospel is not about what we are to do. It is about what God has done. And that makes a profound difference in the way we lean into the world. Maybe your view of Christianity is you come and you've always thought that you had to be good enough in order to be a, be a Christian. That you had to do enough good things that the good had to outweigh the bad. That that's the way you were into the kingdom or that's the way you became a Christian. And Mark is saying in the gospel, the good news is all that has to be done in order for you to be acceptable to God has already been accomplished. Historical fact in the person and work of Jesus. Amen, that's right. Because when, when we want to try to make it happen, when we get to that performance treadmill, how much is enough? How good do I have to be? How do I know if the good outweighs the bad? You get there and it is exhausting. And some of you have that t-shirt, right? You said, I'm tired of living and trying to be good enough and always falling short. And it seems the closer I get to the Lord, the more sin I see in my own life. And Jesus comes and he says, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is right. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for our weary souls. That's a difference that this view of gospel makes in our lives. But I think there's a, a second difference here. The gospel is news of a historical fact that God has entered human history. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas, right? Emmanuel, it means God with us. That God has broken into our world. This gospel is the announcement that there is a new king. And it's not you, <laughs> and it's not me. It's not the governing authorities that we see in power. It's not politics. It's not money. It's not power. It's not popularity. I wonder, who or what rules your heart today? Is it you? Is it someone or something outside of you? 
the good news of the gospel is that there is a new king, and this king changes everything. Because of the historical fact that God has entered our world, that means this is no longer a closed system anymore where we only have a natural things. Something supernatural has happened. That means anything is possible now. Verse 10 of the text, it's interesting, says that heaven was torn open. And now God has come into the world. It is a new day. It is a new beginning. What does that mean for your life? It means that tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. Because the power of God has entered the world. It's a new day. It's a new beginning because there's a new king Who is this new king that has come? What is the good news? What is the announcement? Who is this king that has come to power? And Mark tells us in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the announcement of this historical fact about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. It means Messiah, the anointed one. Mark is saying that this is the Messiah, the royal king that God had promised that he would send to come and make all things right, to do away with evil, that the nations would come to worship him. And here we are this day 2,000 years later, and people very far from Jerusalem or Nazareth are singing his praises in fulfillment of what God promised through the prophets of old. So it's Jesus Christ, Son of God. That tells us that he's some sort of divine figure. And then Mark goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 40. He quotes it there in verses 2 and 3. Now this is really interesting with me. If you were with us over the holiday, Handel's Messiah begins with Isaiah 40. It's almost like Mark is tracking Handel and saying, well, that was a good place for Handel to start. Maybe I should start my gospel. No, right. Yeah, maybe Handel starts, or Jennings starts because that's where Mark begins his gospel, because it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3, and if you know Handel's Messiah, you'll recognize it. Remember, it starts, comfort, comfort ye my people. Why? It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so in verses 4 through 7 that follow here in Mark, John the baptizer is noted to be this messenger, this voice of one that is preparing the way, this voice in the desert that is calling out, make way, prepare the way for whom? Who's he preparing the way for? The Lord. The word in Isaiah is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. (laughs) Mark is saying John is the voice crying out in the desert and that Jesus is God himself. That he's invaded the world. Isaiah 40 and verse 4, that's the next verse after this one. Do you remember what it says? Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked straight, the rough places plain. Mark is saying that Jesus is the one that God promised through Isaiah who would come and remake and restore the entire earth to the way he designed it to be from the beginning. Which means this announcement, this good news, means the gospel is good news of great hope. I wonder, 
What rough places are you facing today? Maybe it's in relationships. We come off of time with family during the holidays, and many folks come and talk with me about that after you spend, and I'm glad to do that. Please come and speak with me. Maybe the rough places you're facing today are with your parents or with your children or with other people you have a relationship with. Maybe the rough places are at job or your job or at school, and you're going to have to go back to those things now, and you dread that, and you have a heavy heart. Maybe the rough place for you is your health. Maybe it's something physical that's bothering you. The good news of the gospel means that I can stand here with great authority, not my own, but the authority of God, and with great assurance and tell you that Jesus will fix what is broken, that he will make the rough places straight. Now we have to be very careful. I'm sure if your heart is cynical like me, you're like, well, hold on now. (laughs) you got to qualify that. And you're right. Jesus qualifies it. And and this is a mistake we often make. Sometimes we overpromise what Jesus can do, and we think we're always going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise in this world. And that's not always true of Christians. But I don't want us to overcorrect and go the other way and not expect Jesus to do anything miraculous in our midst at all. Because if God has entered the world, nothing is the same, right? As Mary said, nothing is impossible with God. And and we see Jesus say that. If you look down in verse 15, when Jesus is preaching, he says, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Now, I would expect him, if Jesus is here, I would expect him to say the kingdom of God is here because I'm here. But evidently, he hadn't written things the way I would write them. I'm learning that, right? Jesus is saying, look, yes, God has broken into the world. He's begun to push back the effects of the fall. And so those rough places you face may be something that he fixes in this lifetime. But it may be something that he does not fix until his kingdom comes in all of its fullness. And we'll see in Mark this unpacking of what he means by kingdom. But I can stand here and assure you that Jesus is the one who will make all things right. That he will make your rough patches plain. That he will fix them either now or when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Well, how do I receive this king? How do I enter into his kingdom? How do I, if I already belong to him, how do I live in his kingdom? And I believe we see that. Mark introduces that here in the beginning of his gospel. First, how do we enter the kingdom? Verse 4, look what John does. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. We enter the kingdom through this baptism that comes through repentance from our sin. Repentance. We enter the kingdom by repentance. It means that something else is our king, that we're trusting in something else. We're looking to something else as our authority. And repentance means that we have this change of mind, this change of heart, this change of direction. We're not trusting in this other thing anymore. And we're turning and we're trusting in Jesus as our king and Jesus as our authority. And when we repent and we're baptized, this symbol of water baptism, it's interesting when you go back and you look at Old Testament baptisms, when you look at that, most of the Old Testament baptisms were just ceremonial washings. 
People would like wash their hands before they go into the temple because you had to be holy and cleansed of sin in order to stand before a holy God. And it was only Gentiles, those people who were not Jews, that had to be totally immersed to go into God's presence. Jewish people were already considered to be clean. And then John the baptizer comes and says, I don't care who you are. I don't care what race you're from. I don't care how good you've been, how moral you've been. Everyone needs to be baptized. No one is clean. It doesn't matter how good. No one is qualified to come into the presence of God. It's only those who are trusting in something else and then who turn and begin to trust in King Jesus and make him their authority in their lives and then submit to him in baptism, in this baptism of repentance that receive forgiveness and mercy by the grace of God. Receiving the king and entering his kingdom requires great surrender of our lives. And I loved Michael Cody's prayer today because he talked about it's not just something that happens at the beginning, but as people in his kingdom, we're always finding our hearts trusting in other things, and we're always turning back to King Jesus. As Martin Luther said, the, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. It's the way we enter the kingdom. It's the way we stay in the kingdom. And you may think to yourself, wow, that requires radical commitment. I have to surrender all that I am, all that I have. I, I, I'm always turning back and giving him authority over my life. If you're like me, I wonder, how do you have the power to do that? Because I desperately want to control everything around me. How do you have the power to do that? And I think he answers that question here in the text as well. Look what John comes preaching in verse 7 and 8. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The way that we get the power to surrender to him is because the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives us power. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a sign that you have met the king, and he gives the Holy Spirit to those who belong to him. You see, water baptism is only a symbol of being cleansed. I know that's a tough sentence for some of us. That water baptism is only a symbol of being cleansed. And I would love to talk with you more about that if you would like. But water baptism does not literally cleanse from sin. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's an internal work. We apply water outwardly, asking the Holy Spirit to do that inward work that only he can do to save us. Now, if you're anything like me, I mean, just, let me just pull away this like, commentary. When I hear a preacher begin to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit, I start getting a little nervous, right? I mean, what does this guy really think about the Spirit? What, is this like one of those weird churches or something, okay? If you're feeling that, I feel that too. I, I was reading this text, and I come to him, and he's like, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I, do I just act like verse 8's not there? Do I have to preach that? You know, what does this mean? And it's so important that we don't ignore this because the power for the Christian life comes from this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I understand that there are some churches, there are some Christians who have had an unbiblical overemphasis on the Spirit. That happens. I know, you probably know people that way, right? 
Well, I know some folks, us, <laughs> who have an unbiblical underemphasis on the Spirit because we're overreacting to the excesses of other churches. So I just want to make a deal with you, okay? I'm about to talk about the power of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're going there, okay? But here's my deal with you, all right? I will back up everything. Everything I tell you about the Spirit, I'm going to show you where that is in the Scripture. Some of them are going to be quick, but I'm going to show you the passages. You've got them there in the sermon notes that you can read about them after. So I'm not going to say anything about the Spirit that the Bible doesn't say. Okay, Jesus is the one, you know, Mark's the one that's writing baptism, of the, that Jesus is going to baptize you with the Spirit. That's not me, okay? Verse 8's not me. It's a thing because it's here. And I'm, gonna make it, I'm not going to say anything that's not in the Scripture. I'm going to show you where it comes from. But the deal I want from you is that if the Bible says that, <laughs> then I want you to believe it and act accordingly. Okay? So let's have that deal. I'm not going to say anything. that, I, And if I can't show you in the Scripture, you can reject it, make fun of it, mock, whatever you want. Okay? But if it's there, then let's believe it and live it out and act accordingly. Okay, let's look. I just made the statement. Water baptism... <laughs> is only a symbol of being cleansed. It doesn't literally cleanse from sin. That has to be the work of the Holy Spirit that saves us. Titus, chapter 3. Let's start in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus, right? When Jesus came, when God comes in the flesh, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done. Okay, he seems on the right track so far because he said that. I heard him say that earlier. All that has to be done, Jesus accomplished. So he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Listen, it's the work of the Spirit that saves us, right? 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 says this, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Do you hear the kingdom language there? We think of Lord as like a religious word. They heard it as emperor, king. No one can come into this kingdom. No one can say Jesus is Lord except that the Spirit is at work in his heart. That's 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. It's the same thing Jesus says in John 3, right? Nicodemus comes to him at night and says what so many people today say. You're a great teacher. We know you must be from God because of these wonderful things that you do. We really like you, Jesus. And he looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see what? The kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about. And Nicodemus says, am I supposed to crawl up in my mom's womb and be born again? What do you mean by that? And Jesus says, no, no, no. you got to be born of water and the Spirit. He's talking about the baptism of the Spirit that we're looking at here. That it's this work of the Spirit that, that gets us into the kingdom. That's John chapter 3. Not only do we come into the kingdom by the Spirit, but we actually live life in the kingdom by the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, 1 Peter 1.2, both refer to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, right? You may know that one. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And we, make a, uh, we resolve we're going to love people. In 2019, I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have self-control. 
I am going to do that. And Galatians 5.22 says it's a fruit of the Spirit. Not a fruit of me and of my flesh. So Galatians 5.22 says that the Spirit gives us gifts for living the Christian life. That he, gives, he grows fruit in us. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 says he gives gifts for the building up of the kingdom. The Bible says we can be full of joy through the Holy Spirit. That's Luke 10 and verse 21. That we can have our conscience confirm things in the Spirit. That's Romans 9 and verse 1. That we have access to the Father by the Spirit, Ephesians 2.18. That we pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18. That we love in the Spirit, Colossians 1 and verse 8. Now I wonder, during each day, and how many of these activities are you consciously aware of the Holy Spirit's presence and power? Is it something you seek is it something that you ask for? I fear it's something that we, that we don't. My fear is that this church is a, is a Galatians 3 church. You remember Galatians 3? Paul goes to him and says, you know, who, who has bewitched you? Who has, who has fooled you? And in Galatians 3 and verse 3, he says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And for many of us who are in the kingdom, the answer to that would be yes. <laughs> I am foolishly trying to do this in my own power, and I'm not depending on the Spirit. But i got to tell you, the good news of the gospel includes this. It includes what Jesus says in Luke 11, down around verse 13. He says, if you, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven, how much more will he give the Spirit to those who ask him? Ask him for it. Seek him. Ask him to give you that kind of power. Because listen, there is a power that the Holy Spirit brings. And I want to talk a moment about the nature of that power and how it works. I think we see it there in verses 9 through 13 in the baptism of Jesus. Do you see it there? the spirits involved. Verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You see, the power the Holy Spirit brought to Jesus was assurance that he was a child of God, loved by God, pleasing to God. And sometimes we look at that and say, well, that's just something for Jesus. And I would agree with you that Jesus has a special relationship with the Father, that he is the only one that truly fulfilled the law. But it's something that he did in our place. And Romans 8 and verses 15 and 16 tell us that, that you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, right, of sonship. And that by the Spirit, that he testifies in our hearts that we're children of God. That we receive that same assurance that Jesus did, that we are children of God, that we're loved by God, that we're pleasing to God. This is how the Holy Spirit brings power into our lives. Now, you may say, how does that work? Listen, <laughs> We may know that we're God's children, and if you're listening on the internet, I'm pointing to my head, but we don't know that we're God's children. Now I'm pointing to my heart. 
It's not something that's a reality to us, or we forget, or we move in and out of that status of living out of that identity as a child of God. It's hard for us to believe deep down that we're really loved by and pleasing to God, so the Holy Spirit reassures us that that is true. And that's an important part of his ministry because we've never been loved by like, like this before. We've never been loved unconditionally like this before. And if it were up to us after the 47th sin, we would cut somebody off. But God continues to love us, and the Holy Spirit's ministry is to continue to assure us of God's love. Yes, convicting us of sin. Yes, prompting us to walk in God's ways. But he also leads us to live in the confidence and the purity and joy that I am a child of God, and there is great power there. Let me show you the power. How does knowing that I'm a child of God, being really assured of that in my heart, how does that really give me power? Oh, man, let me tell you. Let's say you're struggling. You pick the sin. Anyone, I don't care what. Lying, okay? You don't tell the truth. You struggle with spending too much time at work. Or you struggle with the approval of people. You pick the sin and fill in the blank. It doesn't really matter. Because the Holy Spirit gives us power. And the reason I lie, even stupid lies, Small things. Right? People say, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, I know so-and-so. Well, you don't know so-and-so. You're just saying that because you want them to like you or you want to connect with them, you know? And so we say things that aren't even true all the time. Or we stretch the truth because of what people will think or to improve our status. Or we stay longer at work because we want to achieve because that's something we have to have in order to, to mean something to us. And the power of the Holy Spirit comes and says, I want to assure you that you are a child of God, that you are loved by him, that you are dear to him, that you are precious to him. And as that becomes more and more a reality in my heart, you know what happens? I, I don't have to lie to get you to love me. If you like me for him, that's great. But if you don't, the most important person in the universe loves me and treasures me and cherishes me. So I don't have to lie and say, I know somebody I don't know to get you to like me. I don't have to work all the time in order to achieve because Jesus has already achieved for me. It doesn't matter what the sin is. And, and we go through and we deal with the branches, don't we? I'm going to memorize five passages of Scripture about lying. You know, I'm going to make a resolution to not work so much. When the power that the Spirit gives frees us, as we sang about today, gives us great power over. So let me just show you in one other place. It's the last passage, I promise. Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Listen to me. There is a peace available to you despite your circumstances. There is a hope that is available to you. There is an ability to rejoice even in suffering. And the only way to have that is for God to pour out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So I call you, before you start doing great things for God, 
But before you make it your resolution that I'm going to do better in this area, ask for the Spirit. Seek God. Draw near to him so that he will draw near to you. Ask him to show you how much he loves you. Meditate on that. It's the only power we have to live the life that he calls us to live in his kingdom. Let's pray and ask God to do that in our midst. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. I ask that you would send your spirit in this place. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We pray that you would come and do your work now. Father, just because the sermon is over, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would not stop it. We would still be focused on you. And as we come to the Lord's table, I pray that you would use it to grow our faith and to strengthen us to live life in the kingdom. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Prepare for communion, please.